You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. for doing the honors tonight. Thank you so much. And also, also Joseph Cowles, who has been really fantastic to work with over at Random House, who's been working on uh, the tour. And uh, also Pam, who's selling books tonight. We hope you'll check out the table and buy some books. Uh, I will turn it back over now to Laura. Thank you all for being here. Now, I see a lot of new faces in the audience, and if you're new to Mechanics Institute, we were founded in 1854, and we're one of San Francisco's most vital literary and cultural centers here in the heart of the city. We feature our general interest library on the second and third floors. 
our International Chess Club right down the hallway, and ongoing author and literary programs, and Friday, the Cinevalid Film Series. So we have a lot to offer you under one roof at milibrary.org. Please check out our programs and join us on site and also on Zoom. After our conversation, um, we will open for questions from the audience, and also we will be selling books after the program. So you can take a look and purchase books at that time. This novel about race, family, and the rites of passage, the bittersweet rites of passage, is a powerful new novel set in Oakland. And Layla's writing has fluidity, it's got poetic eye and sensibility, and also vision. A vision like vision when you have eyes on every part of your head, front, back, and side. It gives you incredible perspectives and also incredible vision into the heart of her characters. I'd like to now introduce them. Layla Motley is an author native to California, Oakland, California. With an interest in reflecting on institutional and individual inequality, liberation, and joy through writing. Nightcrawl in her debut novel was the Oprah's book club pick for June and an instant New York Times bestseller. Layla has performed and run poetry workshops as the 2018 Oakland Youth Poet Laureate and has been published in Oprah Daily and the New York Times. And our moderator tonight, Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, was born and raised in New Orleans. Ow! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have a from that, from that part of the country. Uh, her recent novel, The Revisioners, won the 2020 Janet Heidinger Hospital Prize, the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work, and the George Garrett New Writing Award and was a California and Northern California Book Award finalist, 2020 Hurston Wright Foundation Legacy Award finalist, and a Willie Morris Award for Southern Writing finalist. Not only that, she was nominated for the 2020 Simpson Joyce Carol Oates Prize and was a national bestseller as well as a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. And her debut novel, A Kind of Freedom, was long-listed for the National Book Award and the Northern California Book Award, and has won many different other accolades. Her work has been seen in Ziziba, the Paris Review, O, the Oprah Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, and other publications, and she lives also in Oakland. So please go Um, this is right after Kiara, the main character, 
um, and her best friend, Ale, uh, go and do this thing that they call Funeral Day, um, which is a ritual of going around to different funeral homes and, um, and finding food and clothes. Um, and then they go back to the park. And this is during that scene. Ale begins to swing her legs, me following her lead, going skyward. At the top, I think I might just enter one of those clouds. I look down, see a tent behind the basketball courts and an old man pissing by a tree, not bothering to look around and see who is watching. I aspire to be so reckless, so unassuming that I could take a piss in San Antonio Park at noon on a Thursday and not even look up. You know what I've been thinking? Ale asks me. We're on opposite ends of the sky, swinging toward each other and missing. And for the first time all day, I'm not thinking about the, the paper taped to our door, about Marcus's sleeping face, about how wide Dee's mouth opens. What she been thinking? Don't nobody ever fix none of these damn roads. She says it, and I immediately begin to laugh, thinking she was about to tell me some philosophical wondering about the world. You don't even got a car, what you worried about? I yell back to her across the wind and the space between our swings. Even as I say it, looking out at the streets that extend from the park like the legs of a spider, I see what she means. Chunks of road sit beside holes they left behind, where wheels of broken down Volkswagens dip in, and for a second, I don't know if they're gonna pull back out until they do. The only remnant of distress left in the slight rattle of the bumper. All the holes in Oakland never seem to leave nobody stuck for long. An illusion of brokenness. Or maybe that's just for the cars. Don't you ever think about how none of the streets around here been redone for decades? Ale, a skater to the core, spends more time dipping in and out of potholes than I ever have. Why it gotta matter? The roads ain't hurting nobody. Don't matter, I'm just saying, it ain't like this nowhere else, you know? Why Broadway not this torn up? Or SF? Cause they put in their money in the city just like they put in their money into downtown. Don't you got a problem with that? Ale's whole body has risen from its slouch, and we're both slowing down now, returning from our sky. No, I don't got a problem with that. Just like I don't got a problem with Uncle Ty buying a Maserati and a mansion down in LA and leaving us out here alone. Just like I don't got a problem with Marcus spitting rhymes in his studio while I'm just trying to pay our rent. It ain't my place to have a problem with somebody else's survival. If the city get their money from paying to smooth over the roads on some rich ass street, then they should go ahead and do that. Lord knows I won't be thinking about nobody else if someone offers me a wad of cash. I wiggle my toes in my Sunday shoes as the swing comes to a halt, and I feel Ale's eyes on me, determined. I don't believe none of that, she says. But you mean you don't believe it? She shakes her head, her own high making her slow. Nah, you got too much heart to be a sellout, Key. You ain't cruel enough for none of that. I know you wouldn't go leaving Marcus or Trevor or me just to make bank. I'd like to think she's wrong. But if she was, then I would stay on these swings all day. Get so high, I don't have to think about nothing but Ale's tattoos and how the streets are fragmenting and will keep disintegrating until we are walking on dirt. Instead, I think of Marcus. How we used to stand on street corners trying to sell paintings I made on cardboard. It barely made us enough to buy more paint, but Marcus and I were in it together, choosing each other. 
it's time I go tell him I can't be doing all the hard shit for him if he ain't gonna do nothing for me. Tell him it's time to put the mic down and face these streets like I've been for the last six months. I gotta go find Marcus, I say, hopping from the swing set and seeing the world fuzz, go in and out of focus, all of it sharp yet spinning. I leave her there on the swings, a puff of smoke exiting her lips like she was holding it in this whole time. And she don't even have to look at me again because now this blazer smells like her Sunday shoes. And today, on funeral day, that is all I need. I love that, Layla. I love that you opened with a scene like that. It's so distinct and so vivid. Um, I've never heard of this tradition. Can you talk about how you decided? Was it always going to start with that particular scene, or was that somehow just moved to the front in the public in the editing process? Yeah, funeral day was at the front, like the very first page. It always and was, and then it was also in the middle yeah. at one point. So it moved around a lot, but. I really wanted to start this book with an understanding of what it means to grieve when you're also trying to survive um, and how we find space and time and um, to grieve while and mourn while we're also trying to find food and clothes um, and and kind of the you know struggle to reconcile those two things at once. I love that the balance of grief and survival that's that's so brilliant. Um, so I think, you know, I think I just want to be clear on something. This book would be an exceptional feat if a 90-year-old woman had written it, right? We agree, we all agree on this. This is just a book that is just outstanding and extraordinary, um, extraordinarily so. And yet we also have to acknowledge that a 90-year-old person did not write this book. This book was written by a teenager. And um, I know we all must be wondering how did how did so much wisdom get captured by someone at that age? How were such authentic characters developed at, at that age? It's, it's like I feel like life has taught me how to do that at, at whatever level I'm able to do it. That's, that's, been, that's been a result of life. So can you walk us through how, not just, not just the publication, but, but just when you started writing and, and what your training in writing has been and, and, and how you got to this point? where you're sitting here today with this book in front of us? Yeah, um, well first I was born. <laughs> then I, I learned to read and write at, I feel like a typical age, I don't know, I was around five or six. And, um, and I think that writing came kind of naturally to me. Um, and I think that that's part just like an innate knowing that that was uh, a way that I expressed myself and understood the world around me and then I also think I was I had access to books and I think that that was really important um, and and I had you know a family who valued writing and art and literature and, and I think that that kind of created um, a foundation to to even think that writing could be for me to find books that I connected with but um, I don't know, I think that I, I just started writing and I didn't stop. And I wrote my first novel when I was 14 and um, I figured out that I loved it. Um, We're gonna give you a handheld because the other microphone's not working that well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Um, and I think that I once I found novel writing, um, it kind of felt like a, a medium that connected with me and, and the idea that we can create these stories and, and kind of infiltrate our common narrative through stories and, and adding um, you know people that we don't often get to see in, in what we think of as the literary canon. So um, I, I started writing novels then and, and I didn't stop and then with Night Crawling, um, when I finished drafting, I read it over and um, every first draft is bad. Yeah. Um, with, with you know, no yeah, exceptions, absolutely. every first draft is bad. And so I was expecting that um, and I was ready to kind of, you know, put it to the side, um, throw it away, realize it wasn't something that was worth working on. But um, I read this one over and it felt like it was important enough to work on um, and like this was was not a story I'd ever read before um, and and like even the, the idea that we can have a teenage black girl as a protagonist um, and, and not take away from her ability to have this nuanced whole voice and interior life. Um, I think that I, I would have loved to read a book like that. Right. Um, and, and so then I, I put in the work and I kind of put myself aside because there's a lot of you know insecurity around writing and yeah. figuring out how to turn something from kind of shitty to a, a polished manuscript. Um, and, and that takes you know putting your ego aside and being able to do it because you believe in that work and you believe in its importance in the world. Right, right, I love that. And I, we were talking a little bit about this earlier, but I think that Layla has an incredible discipline in being able to decide that you know that that more drafts are needed. I don't think everyone knows that, especially you know as younger myself as a younger writer did not know that. And and then I'm also aware that this is not really your first book. This is her first published book. But Layla has actually written books before. Can you talk about what distinguished for you? What distinguished this book for you as the one that you actually wanted to see through? I think that I wrote this book at a time where I was ready to write this book, yeah. um, and my my first book will just like it'll never get dug up. It's okay. not supposed to be okay. exist. <laughs> um, I will never read it again. I get embarrassed by the thought of it. Um, but I think I think it's important to practice how to write a novel. I think it's something that you don't get taught how to do without you know just kind of diving in and trying. Um, and then my second novel, I appreciated the concept, but um, I wasn't ready to write it. Okay. And so I, I kind of put that one back, and I'm thinking I might return to it soon. Um, but with Nightcrawling, I was 17 for the bulk of writing it. Um, and I was, I was writing from the first person perspective of a 17-year-old. Um, and I think that that symmetry, that parallel between Kiara and me allowed me to write this book. And, and I don't think I could do it better later on. I don't think that um, I wouldn't even try doing it right now. Because yeah. uh, I'm not 17. And I think that there's this thing that happens where, I mean, when I talk about this book, the first thing anyone ever says to me is, um, is like I would never be doing that at 17. Like I was, you know, I was laying on the couch, I was eating chips on the yeah. couch, like I don't understand. Um, and I think that that's even really interesting because we all do this thing where we distance ourselves from our, our teenage self yeah. and then we judge them. 
And I think that because I was 17 at the time, I didn't have the distance to be able to judge myself. And yeah. I met the writing Kiara, I didn't judge her first. Um, and I think that that's something that we all kind of instinctually do to teenagers because we don't identify with the person that we were when we were a teenager. Wow, I love that. And I think we've all read books where we know we're reading a book where an author is trying to write like a younger person and isn't actually at that age anymore and maybe doesn't remember. Yeah. So this was <laughs> this was a little different. Um, and I and that's you're right. That's 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 probably why one of the reasons it worked so well because it was real. Wow, and so um, I know that it was also historically inspired mm -hmm. by a real um, case. Um, I know that um, there, that the Oakland Police Department was charged and yeah. found to have ultimately be sexually exploiting a minor, at least one. And um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and um, so can you talk to us about your research process mm -hmm. and um, how much of the true incidents factored into the actual story we read? and then what your research process was like in general. Well, I mean, I recently learned that this isn't like a, a widely known case that outside of the Bay, and even sometimes people who, who have, were living in Oakland at the yeah. very time that the case broke did never hear about it. Um, and I think that that's, you know, uh, neglectful yes. on all of our parts to, to not have continued to talk about this case um, in the way that we, we talk about, you know, Freddie Gray and, right. mm -hmm, and, and Trayvon right. Martin and, and all of these black men and boys who mm -hmm. have been killed um, and brutalized by police. And, and that, is, that is what happened. Yes. This young girl was, was exploited, abused, and, and brutalized by police officers. Um, and in 2016, this case broke, and, um, and there was a lot of aftermath. There was kind of a flurry of media attention in the Bay. Um, but I remember being, I think I was probably 13 or 14 at the time, um, and paying attention to this case and, and being really struck by the way that the media talked about this case and really the lack of focus on this young girl and the like systemic pattern of harm to young girls, yeah. uh, particularly girls of color, and instead this attention on what does this mean for the trust between the community and the police department, right. uh, as though it existed beforehand, yeah. and uh, as though this was the thing that was going to break right. it. Um, and so I, I mean, I kind of uh, that stuck with me over the years and. When I started thinking about writing this book, um, and I was thinking about Kiara and her world, um, and the, the story that I wanted to tell about um, black girlhood and um, and and what it means to grow up in Oakland, I think that um, it fit in with this story to understand how how black girls are vulnerable here and yeah. how our vulnerability is continually dismissed because if we recognize that black women can be fragile, if we recognize that black girls can be fragile, then we also have to recognize the ways that we all are complicit in not protecting black women and black girls. So I think that that was a huge part of, of how I came to this and how um, the two things kind of um, came together. And then I researched other cases of police sexual okay. violence too. Okay. So I had a pretty extensive research process um, kind of understanding the, the pattern of this and also the ways that um, how this case became public because there are very few cases right. in, in the US 
that have ever become public about police sexual violence. Um, and reporting is, is not really even a thing. Um, and yet, police sexual misconduct is one of the top police misconduct. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I, I did a lot of research throughout this okay. process, but I also tried not to infiltrate Kiara's story with excessive research um, because I think that I intentionally chose fiction for this. I didn't write uh, an essay collection. This this wasn't supposed to be a depiction of the OPD case. It wasn't supposed to be um, a true story. It was supposed to be this, this reckoning with what does it mean to see a young girl beyond a headline? And what does it mean to see the way that this can impact an entire life? Um, and to have this young black girl in narrative control. Um, and so we see everything from Kiara's perspective. We see none of it from anyone else's and we don't even get to see the, or hear the uh, police officer's names until the very end of the book. Um, and that was also a way that I intentionally um, flipped around this, this trope, this, this constant way that we focus in on police officers when um, we see cases of police violence and, and we know their names more than we tend to ever know the names of, of the survivors. So um, that, was, that was another way that I attempted to do that in this book. I love that, and and um, I, I really felt that when I was reading this that you didn't burden her story with the facts. And you know, although we still got this very deep and profound message that we needed to get, we we were still carried away by the actual story. And um, I think you did a really fine job inserting something that was you know loosely inspired, but also keeping the just keeping it literary. Frankly. Yeah, and that's yeah. what fiction is. Yeah. I mean. We, we often theorize politics to a point where we can't remember that politics are about people. Yeah. And, and when we read a story, we invest in those people first. Uh, and, and it doesn't allow us to distance ourselves from the stories in the very real ways that, that the policies and, and the politics of, of this country affect them. Right, right. And I love what you're saying about wanting to protect Black girlhood. It reminds me of an interview I saw with you where you said that the only dream Kiara's mother is allowed to have is her husband. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. that and, and also you see elements of that in Kiara's decision making too. It's just, it's just so instinctive for her to put herself out there for her brother. It's mm -hmm. just like ingrained in her that that's just the obvious decision and you don't really see much of a space mm -hmm. between the situation she's in and that decision. It's just mm -hmm. so instinctive. So I, I really felt that um, I just really felt, I, I love that you centered our struggle and you don't see it often. And, and I think you did it so well. So um, one thing I love about this book, I, I'm from New Orleans, but I've lived in the Bay Area for many years now. And I loved that it was such an homage and a love letter to Oakland. <laughs> and I live in Oakland. And I love that I, I would just, I was telling Layla, aside from Tommy Orange, I've never had the experience of like, on every other page, I'm like, oh, I know where that is. Oh, I used to get that once. Oh yeah, I've been to that restaurant. And it was just so nice to just lose myself in that way. Can you talk about um, can you talk about what you want people who are not familiar with Oakland mm -hmm. to know about your city? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I had that experience growing up too. I just didn't ever see Oakland depicted in literature. 
Um, and, and I think that there's, there's some element of the way that um, urban fiction gets uh, kind of genre redlined into this idea that if you write about a city, a historically black city, then immediately it's gonna be put into this category that essentially tells people to devalue it because it's black yeah. and it's unapologetically black. And so um, I, when I, when I approached writing this book, I wanted it to feel um, like Oakland's given the respect that it deserves. There you go. That, yeah. um, that we're able to see it in, in a nuanced way in, in all of its dimensions because I think that often Oakland gets put into this binary of either, you know, a city that um, outsiders see as, as violent, crime-ridden, all of these these, you know, buzzwords that essentially say don't go there, um, it's black. Right. Uh, or it is put into this position of it's new, it's up and coming, it's better now, um, which is directly related to the influx of wealth and, and whiteness. And so I think that when I when I started approaching how do I write Oakland, it, it meant allowing Oakland to be more than one thing at once and letting us recognize the harm that the city and the systems within the city can do to its people, and at the same time, the ways that we're able to thrive and flourish in this city uh, and its uniqueness. It's like constant um, ability to, to inspire really just revolutionary radical thought, um, creativity, uh, an incredible art scene, um, and then coupled with you know the mourning of a city that doesn't look like it used to. Yeah, I love it, and I love I love your nods, um, which were very subtly infused, um, you know, to, to the impact, the deleterious impact, gentrification, et cetera, has had on the city. Um, because you're right, there, there's this there's this idea, and you hear people say, and we're very progressive, that like, oh no, it's so much better now, and it's such a, it, it always just feels like such a jab because we all know what they're talking about, but they don't want to go deeper and acknowledge what they're actually talking about. Right. You know. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a literary question. I'm just I'm just fascinated by by um, Layla's mind. So I read that you like to journal from your characters' perspectives. I love that. Um, can you talk about that? And can you talk about any other interesting aspects of your writing process that you want to share? Um, yeah, I do. I I think that because I write in first person, my books require me to get inside the head of my main character and. Um, and so I draft really quickly, partially because I want to enter their minds and not, not leave it. So with Kiara, I, um, I, I wrote the first draft in two and a half months, and I kind of lived in her brain. And that meant that I journaled like, every day things in, in her perspective. It meant that um, kind of I, I just lived my life as Kiara um, so that I could continually see her story as in the way that she would, um, which I think also helped me as a writer um, not not make a tragedy out of her life, right. because I think that it's easy to do that um, with a character who, who experiences an immense amount of trauma, yeah. but doesn't experience herself as tragic. And so because I experienced the story through her head first, I got to um, to really see it all through that and to get to, to experience the layers of her life in her head. That's amazing. I love that. It, it really shows. Like it really shows you know that character and you can see that emotional range in that book. Um, wow. Other things. Um, yeah. I'm a linear writer. Okay. I write okay. from beginning to end. Um, 
and sometimes that's frustrating for me. Do you outline or? I do not outline the whole thing. I know vaguely where I'm going, uh-huh. and I know the next one to three chapters. Okay. But I like to surprise myself, and it'll end up changing anyway if yeah. I outline. So yeah. um, I, I just let it go, <laughs> however it does. I, yeah. love, I, I love it. And I was telling someone the other day, every author is going to have a different answer to all of these mm-hmm. questions. I just love hearing the different ones. Like, yeah, that's wonderful. And I'm a planner in life. Oh, so, uh, this is the one place where you have... one place where I, I do not plan ahead. Wow. Yeah, so I, I, I just can't. It won't work. Yeah. And then it takes the fun out of it for me because if I know what's going to happen, then I don't really care about writing it. Right. Um, so I, I get to kind of like go, oh, that's fun. Uh-huh. It's new. It's different. Wow. And it feel it feels like that. Like it feels like there was this very natural rhythm in this book where you know things would slow down for a minute and then something would happen to pick it right back up and it just was like that. It ebbed and flowed very perfectly in that way. And so I wonder if like just just letting yourself be taken over by the force that comes through us when we're writing just yeah. just creates the space yeah. for that. But to be fair with Nightcrawling, I didn't know how to plot. Okay. So the first draft of Nightcrawling was kind of like, today I woke up uh-huh. and this is what I breakfast. Uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> and, and I think that that like helped me understand yeah. Kiara and her life and all these characters really yeah. well. Um, but it meant that I had a lot of work to do in revision with plot. Okay. And I, I created plot later after the first okay. draft was written. So now when I write, there Got is it. some plot okay. already there. I try to because okay. it's really painful yeah. to have to add it back in. But um, yeah, with this one, I, I just, wow. I wrote day to day, okay. one scene to the next. Wow, wow. And um, it's, where did the other characters come? Like, mm-hmm. did they come to you through your journaling from Kiara's perspective? Did you learn that she had a brother from her journals? Or did you learn that she had Trevor from her brother, from her journals? Um, I mean, I think that the, the characters around Kiara kind of mm-hmm. come from understanding her better. So I would yeah. find that like the characters would pop up through the journaling, but I would figure out, oh, for her to exist this way, to think this way, she must have a relationship with an older brother who she feels like she needs to care for. And um, and so that kind of thing, where in order to understand Kira, we also needed to understand her relationships, um, that, that changed and, and I kind of learned more. Okay. Um, but I try to learn the other characters through Kiara, okay. so I don't do any like journaling from their perspectives, I don't do any kind of like character maps for them because Kiara is the one seeing them yeah. too. So um, I don't want to see them from, from me, the writer's perspective, I want to see it from Kiara. Wow, okay, wow. And um, one of the things I love about the book is that as, as deep as it is and profound as it is, there are these, you know, and painful, there are these moments where you can glimpse these little flashes of innocence. And some examples to me are, for instance, when Kiara is with Ale, or when, of course, when she's with Trevor, and there are these really, it, it's almost like the, the heartbreaking aspect of the book gets pushed through even, even deeper because you see these little flashes of joy. And it's like, you know, when you think about the character's age, it's like that joy should really be more present. And so you realize that when you see how little is there. Um, what are you? What do you want to say there about who who in our in our lives? You know, who in our society gets to be innocent and who gets to be joyful and who doesn't? I mean, thank you. That's kind of entirely what I wanted this book to do no is to, to like allow us to continually come back to 
Shara is a child. Like she's she's young, and like as much as you know, uh, as a seventeen year old, you don't want to feel like uh, I'm not a kid. But I know. Um, but I think like there's a certain essence of of childness that we we get to see. Kiara in, but only in these glimpses because essentially her childhood has been revoked from her. Her ability um, to to be a kid and to be cared for has been ripped away, and she's been parentified in this way where she doesn't even you know realize what she's lost. And so, as we read this book, like we start to think, oh, we we forget that she's a kid, and we see her in all of these situations which we might think of as like adult situations. And then we get to see these glimpses of, oh my gosh, she's a child. And um, and I think that that's really important because so many of us, I think, forget that black girls are girls. And um, and I think that the, the hypersexualization and the adultification of black girls and black girlhood um, disallows black girls from being children, which will entirely change the way that black women are allowed to move through the world. and. So um, with with this book, I mean, I wanted us to be able to see black teenagers as um, as kids, and and also understand that they're they're really not allowed to be. Um, and through Kiara's relationship with Trevor, we kind of get to see these glimpses of like child play and um, and delight and joy and you know mourning and making pancakes, like things like that, that I think are really important for us to see because Trevor is still a kid and Kiara sees him as a child and wants to preserve his childhood um, and also takes on the role of kind of remothering him um, and attempting to remother herself through him, which, um, which she doesn't have the resources to do, but attempts to anyway. And I think that that's like another thing that, that rips childhood away from her, um, but she she wants to fiercely protect Trevor's ability to be a kid, um, even though she already knows that it, it's kind of gone. That's true, that's so, that's so well said. I think, you know, I think there's this immense literary talent, and then I, I just, I'm so blown away by your ability to discuss these issues that are so prevalent in this book in a way that is truly giving me chills, like I feel like, <laughs> I, I'm just so grateful that this book is getting the attention it deserves. I'm so grateful that these issues are getting the attention they deserve. And um, I'm going to ask one more question because I want to then open it up to the audience. Um, but who have your influencers been? Like, yeah, who do you read? And, and who, who was someone you thought, oh, I want to be a writer like that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, my answer is pretty much always the same where it starts in the same place, but um, Jasmine Ward is my favorite author. Mine too. I love Jasmine Ward. I will read anything she ever writes. Um, and I think she was one of the first authors who I read um, depict black teenage girls in, in this really beautiful way um, with Salvage the Bones. And then also she, she creates these relationships between um, black boys and and their you know sisters and cousins and um, and and the women and girls in their lives that I think that we you know often get to see. Um, so Jasmine Ward for sure, obviously Tony Morrison. Yeah. Um, you have to read Tony Morrison. Of course. Um, I'm working through the rest. I think I have two more books until I finish the whole collection. Um, I I mean I love poets yeah. too, and I love poets who write novels. Um, so Intizaki Chomky is one of my favorites. Uh, Sonia Sanchez's poetry. 
Um, I, I recently read Khaled Hussini's book, A Thousand Splendid Songs, yeah. which I really love yeah. too. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always reading. I think that it's important That's right. to like, constantly be reading as a reader. That's right. And um, before I turn it over, I just, because I, 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 I'm obsessed with this scene in Salvage the Bones, it kind of haunts me. You know when she's in the bathroom, and mm -hmm. I, I think something tragic has happened with one of the boys, and she's mm -hmm. like, Mama said that I was, something like Mama said I was special, mm -hmm. but maybe Mama was wrong. Mm -hmm. That's, oh my God, mm -hmm. that scene, especially once I had a daughter, it just haunts me. But you're right, that's that's another example of someone who's who's trying to preserve the, mm -hmm. the sanctity of black girlhood mm -hmm. in, in you know combating society's uh, depiction of it. Okay. Well, I want to turn it over to the audience because I know we must have so many questions for Layla. Uh, if you have a question, um, just raise your hand and because we only have the one mic, <laughs> I got to ask you to stand. I'll pick on you and you can stand up and ask your question directly to either of our authors. And, and away we go. Who would like to ask a question? Yes. Please stand up so we can hear you. We don't have a microphone in the audience. Hi, Layla. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, what I wanted to ask is, how how do you think your upbringing, writing a lot of poetry as a as a youth poet, influences your approach to writing fiction? What's the relationship between your poetry and your fiction writing? Would I repeat it? Just needs anyone here. Um. So, what do you mean? Partly. Carly asked, um, does my upbringing in poetry and my relationship with poetry change the way that I write fiction and how? Um, yes, I think that I, I mean, I write both and I always have. And so um, I, my poetry was definitely more public for a while, uh, but I was writing fiction at the same time too. And so I try to keep them separate um, because if I write them at the same time, then I end up writing prose poems and nonsensical prose. So um, so I think that in some ways they have to have this separation for me. But I also, I think that um, having lyricism, having poetry being kind of infused throughout uh, prose is really important. Um, and, and kind of it's just naturally the way that I write. Um, but I think that images and, and the ability to like see something differently and, and see language differently um, is something that that I value so much that I um, I take that from poetry and put it into the fiction definitely. Thank you for your question. We have a question over here. I'm asking. Just stand up so we can we can hear you. We only talk about I read your book and I must say it kind of shocked me. I'm shocked by your book. I mean, it is so disturbing the way you represent this young woman who's totally desperate and vulnerable and open. Um, so I wouldn't have described it as a page turner. I mean, I had to take a break. I mean, it is shocking. And was that your intention? And the other thing I want to ask you is, don't you see it as, I saw it as, a social critique? Of I mean, I don't see it as a total celebration of openness, but it's a critique of the position of this young girl. I mean, she's so desperate and lost and so few resources um, 
to me, it seems a highly political social critique. I don't know what you'd say to that. But I wouldn't have said it. I wouldn't have described it as a page turner because I honestly had to take a rest between, between some chapters. You know, it is kind of slightly disturbing. Okay, um, Yes? 
Well, it seems like you're, you're in that um, that arena, that area, and it's a very important age group. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's massively important. As a young person, right. what yeah. you've done mm -hmm. is, you know, okay, here we have another book about a young uh, black girl uh, in, in Oakland, and this is this is her life, and this is what she's going through. And I'm just, I'm just saying, I see that as a very important thing, a very important statement, because she's at that cusp of adulthood. And it's an underlooked age group, I feel. It's not exactly young adult fiction, and it's not quite, you know, truly, you know, I guess what you call adult fiction. It's in that important cusp, is I guess what I'm trying to say. It seems like that's yeah. what fits into, so. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think that it, it does. Um, I mean, I think that we we discredit young people so much, and there are a lot of other young artists and writers who, who are writing about this, um, what it means to be kind of in this limbo between uh, being a kid and being an adult, and um, and so I think that really it's it's just about you know the attention, the respect that we culturally give or don't give to to artists who, who write this. Often, you know, I think that I'm not, I'm definitely not alone in it, um, and I I think it's really important that that we like talk about and give give more voice to young people, and in a way that doesn't you know minimize or um, or kind of create this idea of um, of hyperbole around the experiences of teenagers that, that you know everything is dramatic and extreme um, because. That, that's also kind of life, everything is dramatic and extreme, and like I think teenagers are some of the few people that are actually able to recognize that, um, and and kind of haven't yet been, you know, stampeded by all the ideas of, of what adulthood should be. Um, and I, I think that like right now, I definitely value having characters who, who are kind of in that age group um, and writing about that, because that's where I am right now, but I'm sure it'll change for me too um, throughout my career. Um, and then the second question was, what am I doing next? Am I going back to school? Um, not right now. I'm not going back to school right now. Um, I'm not going back to Smith. Um, I, I think that for me, um, college was a, a huge culture shock. I went to a small school in Massachusetts, and I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into. And um, and I came back here during the pandemic, and I decided I didn't want to leave again. Um, and I think that you know we we all have these ideas about what we're supposed to do in our paths um, in like early adulthood. Um, but I'm kind of trying to reject the idea that in order to be successful, I need to follow this linear idea of, you know, graduate high school, go to college, get a degree, get a job, all of these things. Um, because we don't, you know, we don't know what's about to happen. We don't know what is, even is happening currently. Um, and I think that if we, if we live life with the idea that we're always trying to fulfill an idea of what we, we think we should be doing, you know, at some point we're gonna get to the point where we we look at ourselves and we go, I don't I don't know why I did any of this at all. Right. So <laughs> um, I don't want to do that. So I'm figuring out what I'm doing, taking it kind of day by day. of the ship pool and the water and the bay. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the construction of that imagery and what it means to you. 
Um, the question was about um, the imagery of water in the book, the ship pool, the construction of it, and the meanings of Lizzo. Um, yeah, so we, I mean, we start and we end at the pool, and I think that, um, for me, the idea of water kind of parallels Kiara um, throughout the, the entirety of the book. We get to see um, how something can be um, more than one thing at once, the kind of dualities of, of Kiara's life, Kiara's world, and um, and water, and so how can a pool be literally filled with feces and also be the site for so much joy in the book? Um, and how can you know Kiara look at the the bay and and see it as both you know a a comfort um, and at the same time recognize you know all of the the trafficking and the the ships and and the, the cold realities of of the city um, and world. And so I think that. Um, water kind of acts as that that duality, that dialectic um, for Kiara throughout the book. Good question, right here. <laughs> um, first of all, I really I haven't read your book, but that's only going to be twenty four hours from now. <laughs> <laughs> but I am wondering what advice or do you have any ideas? of how you think for young kids that have experiences and challenging experiences that feel that they can't write, but they can. Mm -hmm. And they need to deal that experiences. Do you have any ideas? Um, the question is um, for, for young people who have you know these kinds of challenging experiences, how you know do we get them to write when yeah um if, if they feel like they can't i mean i think first off not everyone needs to be a writer um writing is not for everyone and i think that we we need to respect whatever you know tool of of expression and processing that any young person finds and if that's writing great but if, if that's you know a, a favorite show or anime or skateboarding or like anything um i think that that's also okay and, and i think that we we kind of put a lot of judgment and criticism on on types of uh passion that are are all right and socially acceptable and um and might lead to some kind of profit i think often um and and i think that when we approach writing, I mean, I think so many of us learn it in a school context as, as a thing that we're forced into, um, and it's nearly impossible to want to do anything that is not your choice. Um, and so I think the first step for, for really anything, for learning to love anything or finding something that you might love is, um, is letting it be a choice and letting it be something that you do for yourself and, and not for um, profit. Yeah. So, Miss Margaret, thank you so much for, for an incredible interview and really schooling some of us on how to appreciate, you know, a, a novel like this. Thank you. Truly. I would have missed out on much of the many of the nuances in that book. Thank you. And Mrs. Steve Lale, uh, I also want to follow up on her point, really, in that, you know, seeing you here, 
is, is seeing you here is so fantastic because not, of course, you're one in a million, but there are one in a million young people all over the Bay Area. You know, and they're talented, and they're passionate, and they're smart, brilliant, and they're, and they're beautiful, and, and, and at some point they have some hopes and dreams about actually being able to channel that and then to plant the seed and then have it be nurtured to the point that someday they could have similar recognition for how awesome they are one day. But for those of us who are old heads, right, and, and maybe have influence, maybe blessed enough to interact with, with some, some of the uh, youngsters of color in this community, you know, the tragedy is, is seeing, you know, the bloom and the leaves and the potential just almost be like a perpetual autumn in Oakland with the leaves just dried up and, and blowing away and what they could have been or should have been. So the question is, how, as an old head, do we help nurture and really make it more possible for more young people to reach the point where you are? both from your perspective as a young person, but also as someone who's five, 10 years older and has had a chance, Miss Margaret, to, you know, see this. That's so kind of you. I'm, I'm twice Layla's age, <laughs> but thank you. Your check is in the mail, please. Your address, you can write it right here on this note card. <laughs> also, Margaret has a book coming out in September. I do. So, thank you. challenging question. Uh, I think that, first of all, I mean, we need to kind of start with um, the young people who you might end up seeing are probably already in a position where they have more of a leg up than the young people who you don't even know are as brilliant as they are. Um, and I think that that's kind of like our foundational uh, mistake is not providing the resources to to young people who are not going to just get here without you know enough support to be able to you know have their basic needs met because you can't do anything until you are able to you know make sure you have shelter and and food and like community and love and I think that when we start there then we end up getting to the place where like young people are able to you know have the time the resources to do things that they love um and and I mean I think that yeah resources are so important like they're they have to be a part of the conversation from the beginning um and then I think you know just like not looking at young people as exceptions um any of us because I think that the second we do that then we you know devalue every other young person around them um, and and you don't need to have some kind of like special talent to be important and valuable and worthy um, and I think that we often make that mistake especially with young people So for me, um, what was so amazing about your novel is depth. 
like I went places with Kiera. Like I remember thinking like, oh, I got kind of underestimated. Like okay, let's see what happens because you're not gonna really go there. But you, we went everywhere. We went to all those spaces that were painful, joyful. Um, but it was clearly like I think my my question is. How did you practice self-care in that very deep investigation of the experiences of women, women of color, black women, like, and and, and in Oakland, I think, you know, sometimes, um, a lot of times when these issues come up, we say, like, be quiet about that, like, don't talk about that, whatever, and, like, you didn't just, like, you just went so deep into those spaces that were so enlightening for all of us, and how did you handle that. I mean, like, we're talking about you being a young person, but I don't know if that's really so relevant as much as, like, you you went somewhere that I, in that book, I went somewhere I hadn't been before with another woman, and, you know, in the experience of women, and how did you care for yourself in the meantime? Um, I think you ever heard that one, yeah? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I did not practice a lot of self-care, Um, because I did write this as Kiara, like I got deep inside of her in her head, and I, you know, I wasn't gonna pause to exit to take care of myself um, because I, I think that wouldn't have done justice to Kiara, her character, um, or her world. And I think um, part of it was experiencing every moment with her. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think we sometimes just have to face that things things are hard and we can't run away from them. Um, and and I think that, you know, self-care is really important, but also sometimes the, the most caring you can do is continuing to be in that space and not exiting and not running from it. Um, because um, I, think, I think for me, like I needed to process it all. And I processed it as Kiara and I processed it as myself too, but, um, but I think that a lot, a lot of writing this book was was just being there um, because we were witnessing Kiara as, as readers and as a writer, I was too. Um, and and it also helped me, I think, to 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 be able to just like sit with it all. Um, and and I think as a writer, you know, like I process my own things through through my work, and I also process my characters. Um, and and they kind of end up colliding and merging, and I don't want to do that separation um, because I think it's important that me and Kiara end up kind of intertwining by the end. Thank you. Um, 
infiltrated with our ideas of her before before we had a chance to even know her. So um, that was the first thing that I said. And then I got, I think, six covers. Um, and I think three of them had faces on them. <laughs> and um, and I I actually liked one of the ones with a face on it, but I was I was just not happy with the face because she looked like an older woman and um, and that just wasn't it. Um, so I, I saw this one and I immediately like knew that was it. It was nothing like I imagined that the cover might be. I made some some small edits, uh, but I think that it you know it captures kind of the kinetic feeling of, of movement through the book. Um, and and I also think that it was it was just beautiful that we got to see a, a black girl with braids on cover because um, we don't know what to do that. Not not many book covers, and we don't see her face, um, but we do see her and kind of her energy. So. Um, I think one of the things that makes the book so compelling is uh, the love that you show Kiara is mimicked by the love that she shows Trevor, especially. I, I see that. Really She's exceptionally present with him. And I know you've worked with children, and I feel like that must have, you know, that, that certainly informed uh, the way you allowed her to engage with him, the way you let her show up to him. And uh, I think that that's, uh, I wonder, going forward as a professional writer now, um, how do you maintain that proximity, that intimacy, to, to be able to love your characters that well? To know that it's not, you know, a diamond in the rough or one in a million. It's any it's any person that you pour love into, right? That you don't systemically deny resources from. Yeah, I mean, I I worked with in preschools um, for for like think four or five years, and when I wrote this book, I was I was working um, I think full time for most of it, and so I often was writing this book in my notebook during nap time and um, and after my shifts, and I think that um, that definitely like being around kids helped so much with um, with creating Trevor and and characterizing the bond between him and Kiara um, because we, we really get to experience Trevor as a relief um, and as kind of this this person who allows Kiara to be in her present moment um, and for that to not be painful. Um, and, and I think kids, you know, there, there's some of the few people that force us into this moment. And, um, and I think that that was really important for me in writing this. Um, I think it's a challenge now uh, as a writer to to be able to focus only on my characters, and that's mostly just because I know people might read it. Um, and when I wrote Nightcrawling, I did not think a single person was ever going to read the book, and that just changes the way that you think about your work. Um, and and so I am working really hard to kind of just block everything else out. Um, and, and give my characters all of my attention um, because I do think it, a huge part of writing for me is, is really allowing my characters to, um, to be the most important 
people um, uh, in their story. You know, yeah. it's it's about them, right. um, and it becomes like I am not important in in the process. Like I am the least important part of writing the book, and um, and I think that's like also a really beautiful place to be because um, it's not conditional on me. It's it's really about these characters and the story that I'm telling, and so um, this book helped me definitely learn how to do that. And now I'm just I'm working on trying to get it back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I know you. Speaking of having input to the cover, you're a narrator of your audio book. Yes. Whoa! I am an audio book person, and I have never seen a marriage so perfect. Who is your book? Yeah, um, Janice Abbott Pratt narrates the book. She's incredible. Um, it was really interesting for me with with finding the narrator because at first I was like, it needs to be someone young enough to be able to capture her youth in her voice. How is she? Um, and enough. I mean, she's I think she's in her thirties. Yeah. Uh, but um, there were a few different narrators who I listened to tapes from, and I kept coming back to Janice because of the way that she was able to carry rhythm. Um, and, and she doesn't sound like she's, you know, 17, but that's okay, yeah. because she ends up being able to hold Kiara's spirit in all of it. And she, I mean, she matched every word to this like powerful cadence. Um, and she also knows how to um, kind of get into the other voices in the book, the way that she was able to do Marcus kind of sold me on it um, because I was I didn't even think about like how, how they were supposed right. to you know do the dialogue with a lot of men in this book. Um, and and Janice did it beautifully. And so um, she she just felt like the perfect person because she, she could hold the poetry in it. And that was that was I mean, something that I didn't even know I, I needed. Yeah, I love that. Wow. listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.